This moment we're having, which is an unprecedented moment of worker power, is good for the economy overall. When you raise wages, you raise economic mobility, you raise opportunity, you grow a stronger middle class. The COVID-19 pandemic and persistent labor shortage are pushing wages up for low-income workers. But tens of thousands of jobs in Minnesota have not yet returned. We lost 416,000 jobs when this pandemic began. We've gained back about 270,000. So we're roughly 60, 65% of the way back. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nesterak. This week, a conversation with Commissioner Steve Grove of the Department of Employment and Economic Development. We talk about how the state is helping people get back to work. So we're calling thousands of Minnesotans every week, for the first time ever, who are on unemployment insurance and directing them to job opportunities that exist in the economy. And we talk about a bright spot of the past year, Minnesota's small business boom. Grove explains what the state is doing to encourage entrepreneurship, as well as another key to long-term economic prosperity, racial equity. I think it's not just a moral imperative, because of course it is, but it's also an economic imperative. It's Friday, July 16th. Commissioner Grove, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. You know, I want to start by learning more about you and the path to the job you have now, because it's quite remarkable. You went to Harvard and then worked as a reporter at ABC and the Boston Globe. Then you worked at YouTube and were an executive at Google for over a decade. Why leave a high-flying job in Silicon Valley for Minnesota state government? Well, part of it was that my wife and I moved back to Minnesota. Um, we had uh, twins. We're now four and a half. And uh, a lot of my family lives here in Minnesota. So coming back to this state to be closer to grandparents and family was always kind of a discussion. But then when we had the kids, it was you know, became a really appealing move. And we'd always thought, you know, maybe we'd end up back in the Midwest. We had started a nonprofit. My wife, Mary, and I focused on helping young folks in Minnesota find careers in technology. And we were bringing them out to Silicon Valley all the time. And so we were starting to build some connections back to Minnesota. And, you know, I'd always thought about public service as a potential career direction. I got a master's in public policy. It's something that I worked on kind of within Google um, in the corporate context for some time. But uh, moving back here and reconnecting with Tim Walls, who uh, I had helped him briefly on his first congressional campaign, was exciting. And seeing his gubernatorial campaign ramp up, uh, it just got to some conversations that we started having about ways that I might help. And this particular role running this agency, the Department of Employment and Economic Development, I think it's helpful to have someone who has bridges into the private sector because a lot of what you deal with is business growth and business sustainability. And so it seemed like if I was to do something in public service, this is the right place to do it. Hmm. And I guess, how is working in government so far, uh, and how is it different than the private sector? <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways, although in some ways it's not. I will say, you know, some of the cliches are true. It moves a little bit slower, but there's reasons for that. Um, you know, it's got uh, some challenges as it relates to the politics of the role and things. But, you know, I will say that just like in the private sector, government to be successful has to have a great culture. And one of the things that I learned at Google uh, time and again was just the importance of having the kind of culture where people can try new things, they can fail, they can try again, um, they can collaborate across teams, or there's a bit more of an, an open uh, framework for collaboration. And we've tried to bring that into DEED. Um, I think the difference in the public sector is all that's on display and being scrutinized by the public, as it should be. And so you develop over time in public sector 
organizations this kind of resistance to change or to risk taking because the the downsides of taking those risks seem bigger. Whereas, you know, Google, a multi-billion dollar corporation where you can afford to take massive bets that fail spectacularly and still see your stock price go up, you've got a lot more of a safety net. And when you're using public dollars and public resources, it's just a very different equation. So we try to create an environment at Deed where we can mirror some of that same risk-taking and uh, innovative thinking that goes into some private sector companies, um, while at the same time respecting that government is different. You can't just come in and try to make government, you know, just like Google is, for example. There are key differences. So we're coming out of the pandemic. Unemployment in the state has dipped from a high of 11% in May of 2020 to 4% last month. That's nearly back to pre-pandemic levels. So I'm curious if there's lingering effects of the pandemic, and if so, can you survey the wreckage for me? Well, there certainly are lingering effects of the pandemic. You mentioned the unemployment rate, and it has gone down. But unfortunately, part of the reason it's gone down is that people have dropped out of the labor force. There are many in the workforce who took an early retirement, or who got discouraged, or who took a pause on searching for jobs because of well, a whole host of reasons, whether it's health concerns, childcare, uh, availability of the jobs, and, and what have you. We lost 416,000 jobs when this pandemic began. We've gained back about 270,000. So we're roughly 60, 65% of the way back. So we do have a lot of growth uh, ahead. And the number that I'm paying attention to every week is labor force participation rate. How many people in Minnesota are out there actively looking for jobs? and finding them. This has been a state that traditionally has one of the strongest labor force participation rates in the country. Um, we've been north of 70% uh, of our working age population in the labor force for, for a long time, which is top one, two, or sometimes three in, in the nation. Um, we're down around 67 or 68% now. And um, as that number goes up, it's going to show us that consumer confidence is back, worker confidence is back, people are getting back into the workforce. Again, we're still much higher than the national average. This is a hardworking state. Um, but we have a major labor shortage right now. And I think that's the thing that in, in the near term anyway, is a big focus for us. It was here before the pandemic, but the pandemic just accelerated that gap in ways that have been really challenging for employers. So half of all states have already ended federal unemployment benefits early. Uh, Republicans say that this extra $300 a week is contributing to the labor shortage. Minnesota, as far as I know, is planning to continue distributing the extra payments through the official cutoff of September 6th. Can you explain why? You know, I think it helps to back up and look at the overall challenge. The overall challenge is we have a labor shortage in our economy. And so employers are saying, hey, I can't get workers to come in and take the jobs that I'm offering. Why is that? And the truth is there's a host of reasons for that. And there's a host of reasons that have been true for many, many years. Again, we had a major labor shortage before the pandemic began. The $300 top-off per week that, as you mentioned, ends on September 6th is the reason that everyone's pointing to now because it's something new. And I'm not here to say that it isn't a factor for some workers. I'm, I'm sure that it is. I, I know that it is. But for many others, it isn't. And when we survey workers about their hesitancy to get back into the market or the challenges they're facing when they get back in the market, what they talk to us about is concern around contracting COVID in the marketplace. We're still not fully out of the pandemic in the sense that COVID is there. They talk about a shortage in childcare. They talk about wages being too low. Um, and then they talk about the flexibility that they need for their own schedules and their own availability as it relates to the ability to work. So there's a host of reasons at play. 
Um, it's also important to remember that those federal benefits bring in over $100 million a week to the Minnesota economy that those workers then in turn spend in the economy around us. So that is also helping fuel the recovery. These are federal dollars, again, that are not coming out of, the, our, of our unemployment insurance trust fund, but the federal uh, piggy bank that that is helping. So it's it's not an easy decision in the sense that I, I understand the frustrations of businesses. I grew up in a small business family. My dad had a small landscaping company growing up every summer. It was just that eternal struggle to find good workers who are going to, you know, do good work, show up on time, you know, be thoughtful and contribute. That was always a challenge. So I, I talk to employers every week and understand those challenges. Um, I think we're just not certain that it's just those benefits that are causing our labor shortage challenges. And um, we got to look at the bigger picture here to try to get as many people in the workforce as we can. So what can the state do to address the labor shortage? Yeah, well, it's, it's an important question because that's really what we're put in these agencies to do, which is to help you know businesses find workers and help workers find the right jobs. We have to rethink our whole model. I'll say that, you know, we sit on top of workforce development system that hasn't meaningfully reformed itself in a very, very, very long time. And our system is not always set up to help workers find jobs in the easiest way. And I'll give you an example. A lot of it is based on the brick and mortar career force centers you have across our state, which are really important. Certainly that kind of in-person engagement uh, with people searching for jobs is helpful. But if we're just sitting inside of a building and waiting for workers to come to us, we're not being as proactive as we need to be for businesses and for workers. So one of the things that we've done recently is we've we've really transformed an entire section of our agency um, to move from being kind of a, a team that sits in a building and waits for people to come and find jo- help them find jobs to a proactive call center. So we're calling thousands of Minnesotans every week for the first time ever who are on unemployment insurance and directing them to job opportunities that exist in the economy or to training opportunities uh, to transition industries or gain skills they need to find an on-demand job. So this is something we've never done before at Deed. It's a completely new imagination of, of our work. We're calling this campaign Good Jobs Now, just to be real civil about it. There are good jobs now in our economy. It's an approach that's not without its challenges, but we have to be trying new things if we're going to get a different result. That's just one of the things. I'll say another area for reform is our state's workforce development fund. We pushed really hard this, this last legislative session to reform this particular fund. It's a really unique thing Minnesota has that is funded by employers, and then the agencies use it to train workers for those those employers. It hasn't been meaningfully reformed since about the, I think, the late 1980s. We weren't able to get the reforms through this somewhat contentious legislative session, but we do think it needs to be reformed to focus a lot more on equity, more on, more on performance, um, and make sure that every one of those dollars is spent wisely. So there's a lot of area for, for growth and change in our workforce system, but it's got to start with partnering with, with employers to know what they need. Can you say more about the Good Jobs Now program and how you're reaching out to workers and how successful it's been or not successful? Sure, yeah. Well, we have made over 50,000 phone calls to workers across the state, and we've referred them to almost 300,000 training opportunities or job openings through those conversations. So it's pretty expansive. You got And are these generic or are you, you know, are you trying to con- turn a home health care worker into a plumber or, you know, can you- Yeah. Well, certainly it's a, a, any individual job seeker's choice, the industry they want to pursue, but we are talking about industry switching. You have to. So we are looking at the the markets where there's the most in-demand jobs that pay a family sustaining wage. And talking to workers about those opportunities, it's a hard thing to imagine switching industries. And, you know, when you survey 
job seekers in Minnesota, they're nervous about switching jobs. But if you can point to the increase in pay they might receive, if you can help walk through what opportunities there are in training to get there, um, we are seeing some conversions. Um, we also are just trying to get people into jobs that they want to do. So again, we're not trying to be too prescriptive, but it's a weird moment in our economy because there are certain industries where the bottom has just fallen out and other industries that are booming. And while some of that is leveling out now, it's going to take some time for the state's hospitality industry to fully come back, for example. And workers don't always have that time. And so what are some industries where they can contribute, um, where there's solid career opportunities for the future and, and how can our training program help them get there? That's the question we're asking every day. And it's it's the pathway we're trying to pay for some of these workers and, and help, help them feel like they're not on their own. You know, speaking of the most in-demand jobs, you know, two of those are restaurant workers, hospitality workers, and home health care workers. Those do not pay a living wage. And so you're not directing people towards those jobs in the good jobs um, program? Our goal is to put people into jobs that pay a family-sustaining wage. So there are certainly some jobs in the industries you mentioned that do that, but there are those in those industries that don't. So again, we're here to advise and consult, um, but we're going to point you to the jobs that we think pay well. And you know, I think you ask a, 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 an important question that at a deeper level has to do with wages in our economy today. We have had far too low of, of a wage rate in this country for far too long. And I think it is a hopeful sign that this pandemic, in many, many cases, has finally unleashed a little bit of upward pressure on wages in a way that we certainly hope uh, continues. Um, you can't feed a family off of, you know, $12 an hour. Uh, and you can't, um, you know, raise a family the way you want to raise them. You have to take three different jobs and work 80 hours a week to make ends meet. So I do think that this moment we're having, which is an unprecedented moment of worker power, is good for the economy overall. Um, when you raise wages, you raise economic mobility, you raise opportunity, you grow a stronger middle class. You know, one of the challenges we face in our market right now is if you look at all the job vacancies in Minnesota and average the wage rate for them, it's 80% of what the average wage rate is in the state. So it's no surprise that the open jobs are the ones that pay a little bit less than the jobs that people currently have. And our hope in this moment is that more firms are able to raise wages where they can, that that works out for them. We certainly see those that do see big success in terms of being able to hire. And that, that changes a bit of the dynamic in our market in a way that, um, that grows well for everybody. One thing that's striking about the pandemic is that small business formations in Minnesota increased 31% during this past year over 2019. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there was a small business boom amid a pandemic? And do you expect it to continue? I certainly hope that it does. You know, this happens often in economic downturns that you see business starts go up. One of the reasons is that people simply don't have jobs that they would have otherwise had. So they have to start something new. It's, it's a moment of desperation or of just need to provide for, for yourself and for your family. But the other reason is that people see disruptions in the marketplace. They see a gap where, wow, this downturn shows us that things could have been different if I tried this solution versus that. And so that kind of creative energy gets that gets churned up. Minnesota traditionally is ranked in the lower half of states in terms of starting new businesses. I want to say in the in the 40s overall. But we're the number one state in the country for business survivability. So if you start a business in Minnesota, it is more likely to be around five years from now than in any other state in the United States of America. That's a huge win for us as a state. It shows that this is a good place to start and build a business. 
Um, we just think we need more swings at the at the pitch uh, to ensure that more businesses can grow and stick around. We need more people to start stuff. So we have seen business starts uh, increase by about 30% over the last year. Uh, we want to see that continue. It's part of why programs like Launch Minnesota uh, and the Angel Tax Credit, both of which we fought for a lot in this last session and which passed, are really critical to help incentivize new business growth. We want to de-risk it a little bit for folks. If, if there's some risk aversion in the market, we want to try to eliminate that. And I'll say that all the net new jobs and recoveries ultimately come from the small business growth. So this isn't just something that's kind of nice to have. This is what our economy depends on. We have to have new businesses grow now if we're going to see job growth long term. And we want them to be in industries that have long term potential. And when you think about the kind of options people have today for where they want to live and work and you know where they want to raise a family – you know, Minnesota has a lot of advantages, but we can't rest on any laurels. We have to entice talent to come here, to live here, to start businesses here, to, to grow here. It's an imperative part of our recovery because, you know, these kinds of disruptions, you know, there's winners and losers. Well, then talk about how Launch Minnesota and the Angel uh, Investor Tax Credit does that or, or gets you close yeah. to that. Well, Launch Minnesota, again, a new program, just a couple of years old, but really meant to help those early, early stage entrepreneurs take the leap. And so it provides innovation grants, um, you know, small amounts, but enough to get you started in an effort, really even before you're getting money from investors. So it, it helps you take that leap to begin a company on an idea, um, maybe before you have a, a ton of investors coming in. Now, you have to have some involvement with outside investors. There's a matching component there. Um the Angel Tax Credit been along much longer than Launch Minnesota, about 10 years. Uh, we were one of the first states to have such a credit. I tell you, I wish it was a lot bigger than it is, um, but at least we have it. It essentially incentivizes venture uh, capital to come into the state by incentivizing, uh, by uh, creating an incentive for investing in a Minnesota startup. So you invest in a Minnesota startup, you get a tax credit back for doing so. And we find that that has drawn in a ton of investors outside of Minnesota. So over 50% of those tax credits end up going to venture dollars outside of the state, which again, just shines a spotlight on our own ecosystem for the rest of the uh, rest of the country to see. So these are, these are not huge programs, but they really punch above their weight because of the message that they send to the rest of the country and to our ecosystem here that state governments cares about you and, and wants to play a role in, in growing these kinds of businesses. This month, Minnesota joined a few dozen other states in suing your former employer, Google, alleging it's operating a monopoly with its app store. Um, this is the second lawsuit against Google that Minnesota has joined. Um, there was another one alleging anti-competitive practices in Google's search engine. And so I guess I, I want to ask you how you see Google and other tech behemoths as affecting entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship in Minnesota specifically. You know, it's an important question. I will say that I find the core thesis behind some of those lawsuits to be a, a little off. You know, my perspective is that a lot of the basic tenets of open and free technologies are that you have a choice to use them, and because you have a choice to use them or not, um, they're different from a more proprietary, you know, technology uh, platform. Um, no one's forcing you to go to Google. No one's forcing you to click on a link. And Google generally tries to send you places to get information versus to hold you within their own environment. So it's a little bit different than, say, a Facebook. Um, but I understand more broadly the concerns around big tech right now. And one of the things that I focused on a lot in my time at Google was fighting the scourge of fake news across the Internet. Uh, I built and led a team called the Google News Lab, and we were focused on a whole host of challenges that exist in media. But one of the most important ones was how to vet and verify and 
uh, weed out fake news in partnership with news organizations, because I think Google has to work in partnership there and certainly not on our own. So I think that tech companies, and I'll just say having worked in one, are increasingly waking up to the idea that their responsibilities may be a little bit more uh, significant than they would like it to be. Um, YouTube and, and Google and other platforms like to say, hey, we're just a harbor and you can come in and out and we're just here to provide the technology. And I think that has changed significantly. And we saw that at the News Lab a lot. And I think they need to play a more forward-leaning role. As it relates to these these lawsuits, I guess I'll leave that mostly to the lawyers. But um, you know, I think when you look at the ways in which technology has has empowered people to build companies too, it's not such an open and shut case. And I think you got to treat each technology company a little bit differently when you do that analysis because they are very different in some fundamental ways that requires you know a different approach. Well, can you say more about how tech behemoths may um, encourage or discourage entrepreneurship? Um, because if you're, you could be starting a, a business and your dream is to get bought out, <laughs> um, or you could not sell out and then you know a, a tech company comes and builds something similar and and edges you out. And so, you know, there is this huge concern about um, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon becoming so big that uh, it's it is stymieing entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think and I, well, I think stemming entrepreneurship and I think the questions around you know speech and access to information and the common conversation we're trying to have around topics is another element of that that conversation when you're talking about big tech. I mean, look, I think that the tools that companies like Google and Facebook, and YouTube, others build have helped small businesses reach audiences in ways they never otherwise could have, and the economic impact that comes from that is, is not to be ignored. But the situation you don't want to get in is is one in which. You have somebody building a great new approach to something and they get only so far as to suddenly see Google create the same thing like that and wipe them out or that the same tools Google that, that Google and others create to help these businesses thrive are somehow used in a way to direct people to Google's version of that technology versus their own. And I think that's the crux of some of these lawsuits and some of the conversations around them. I don't have the exact right answer for that one, um, but I'll say that having worked at Google, the, the mantra there, and I, I do think it is true, is that Google does better where a lot more startups thrive. Um, and my wife, Mary, actually built a team called Google for Entrepreneurs when we were at Google. And it was all about ecosystems and platform growth around the country and helping these new startups succeed. And the ethos there was very much about um, you know, access to technology and opportunity for growth. But you know, this is something that regulators have to pay attention to. And again, this isn't my area of poly policy expertise, but I do think it's right to focus on this and make sure that we get it right. These are questions that we haven't had to ask ourselves in these ways ever before. And it's a moment, I think, for big tech to really be held responsible for it. And so I think that the the lawsuits will play out and, and give us great understanding of, of how it's going to be moving forward. Let's look out into the future. What are the biggest problems Minnesota needs to confront in terms of employment and economic development over the next two or three decades? Well, we have got to make this economy inclusive. There's just no question. The gaps between whites and people of color across any number of metrics in our state is appalling. And as it relates to our economy, that is true in the unemployment rate. It is true in labor force participation. It's true uh, just for talent and, and access to opportunity. We have a real opportunity right now to take this moment we've all been in for the last 15 months in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the um, in, in the wake of this pandemic, all the problems that have been laid very bare for all of us to see, we could be an inflection point. So I, I would like to see 
Minnesota become a state that that gets this right, that finds a way to create opportunity for everyone. And I think it's not just a moral imperative, because of course it is, but it's also an economic imperative. 70% of the growth of our labor force in the next 10 years is going to be people of color. Um, the only reason Minnesota's population is growing at all is because of immigration and oftentimes foreign immigration. Um, we have been a welcoming state for people of color, but we don't always create the opportunities for them that we, we need to in our economy. And I think it's I don't think it's for lack of wanting to get it right, but we need to be trying new things if we're going to get a different result. You know, I think in the next 20 to 30 years, we could be in a very different economy if we find a place to make sure that everyone can do better because when they do, um, we're going to have a much stronger state to live in. And I think states that get that right are going to find themselves in a very strong position a few decades from now. And those that don't really aren't. It, 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 will, it will catch up to you. It will not make you the kind of state that draws talent and draws opportunity. Commissioner Steve Grove, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Mac. Thanks for having me. This show was produced by me, Max Nesterak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Rylan Eichens and Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme. If you like the show, you can support us by making a tax-deductible donation to the Minnesota Reformer and leaving us a great review on iTunes. Tell everyone you know to subscribe to the podcast, as well as our newsletter, which comes out every weekday morning. We'll be back next week with a new show. Until then, have a great weekend.